Erwin Kotler is a near-legendary champion of human rights. He's carried out that mission as an attorney specializing in international law, as Canada's Minister of Justice, Attorney General, a member of Parliament, a law professor, and international chair of the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights, an organization he founded. He served as counsel to Soviet dissident Nathan Sharansky, anti-apartheid activist and former South African President Nelson Mandela, the Tutsi people of Rwanda, and many others, both famous and not so famous. Here in Washington, he's just been awarded the Tom Lantos Human Rights Prize. I'm eager to hear his thoughts on the October 7 massacre in Israel. That atrocity was carried out by Hamas, backed by Iran's jihadi rulers. And about all that has followed since in the Middle East, the U.S., Canada, and elsewhere. Also joining us for this conversation is Rod Kitri, a senior fellow here at FDD and a law professor at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Ord is the author of Lawfare, Law as a Weapon of War, published by Oxford University Press. I'm Cliff May, and I'm glad you're with us, too, here on Foreign Policy. Well, welcome, Erwin. It's good to see you good in this trying <laughs> in this trying time. I mean, I guess just start by giving us quickly. I know you could talk about this for a long time. The shock and horror, and your response to the ten seven massacre. It was much worse than. I mean, we. I think we all knew how terrible Hamas was. We didn't expect them to be able to carry something like this out. Part of it, what I, what what occurs to me is that, we're, and we were talking about this on, offline with, uh, with with Ord earlier. You know, Russia committed terrible atrocities in has committed in in, in Ukraine. In, in certain places, they tried to hide their atrocities. They buried the people they tortured and killed. This was went a step further. Hamas was proud of all the atrocities was committing. It filmed it. It put it out on on the internet. We didn't have to look for evidence of crimes. These war crimes they are proud of, and worse yet, in some way, so many people are not just uh, condoning, but celebrating these atrocities and war crimes. Well, you know, on that fateful morning of October 7th, I was actually in Jerusalem with my family. We were celebrating my son's marriage uh, in Israel, and that was to be a particularly festive uh, Shabbat morning. It was the last day of uh, Sukkot, which is the most festive holiday on the Jewish uh, calendar where we celebrate not only the indigeneity of the Jewish people, but also our common humanity, our mutual obligations to each other. And it was Simchat Torah, celebration of the, the Torah reading, last book of the five books of Moses, starting again. So this was going to be a real celebratory Saturday. But as we were about to depart for the synagogue, air raid sirens began, foreshadowing the launching of hundreds of rockets. I think we don't appreciate that every rocket targeting a civilian population is a war crime. When you have 500 rockets, then what you've got here is a widespread systematic attack targeting. That's a crime against humanity. And so rather than get to a synagogue, we ended up uh, in a bomb shelter. And that's in that bomb shelter, we started to see the atrocities unfold. Why? Because Hamas was uploading it, as you mentioned, on social media. And so I'm sitting there in that bomb shelter in real time, hearing on the one hand anguished cries for help from those in the kibbutzim and others in the southern border, and Hamas's telling of their atrocities. My granddaughter, who was with me, who had her own little tablet, nine years old, was watching, said, Grandpa, uh, Saba, uh, are we going to live? In other words, she was terrified. Now, people may not understand, you can be in Jerusalem, you're only 60 miles away. 
uh, from uh, Gaza. So there's a kind of family intimacy about Israel. And this was a an assault on the common family, on the Jewish family, but on the human family. It's a word you use, and I'm gonna, I, I want you to repeat it, and, and I want you to define it for people. It's very important. You talked about the indigeneity of the Jewish people. And the reason I want you to explain this is because one of the allegations being made against Israelis is that they are settler colonialists. They're from someplace else. They're not from this region. Right. This is one of the things that that you you hear saying as as a, as a reason and a justification for the worst kind of terrorism is that these people are not somehow Jews don't belong in the Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem. Don't belong in the Judean hills. Jews don't belong in the Judean desert. And they're saying this on university campuses, which to me suggests a profound ignorance and hostility combined. Am I wrong? It is both. It is uh, ignorance and, and hostility. I've always said that the uh, Jewish people are a prototypical uh, indigenous people, a people that uh, inhabits the same land, embraces the same religion, studies the same indigenous Bible, hearkens to the same indigenous prophets, speaks the same indigenous language, Hebrew, and bears the same indigenous name, Israel, as it did 3,500 years ago. So, it's a prototypical indigenous people. It's also a prototypical anti-colonial people. Right. Because it's a, a people that has been enslaved and exiled and displaced and subject to ongoing uh, persecutions, etc. prior to, and then came, of course, the Holocaust. And I've always said with regard to the Holocaust, it's not the case that if not been a Holocaust, there would not have been a state of Israel. It's the other way around. around yes. That if there had been an Israel... There would not have been a Holocaust or the horrors of Jewish history. So it's an anti-colonial. The final thing I, I would say that's not always appreciated is that the Jewish people, people in Israel, are a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual people. So th this notion that this is a, a white supremacist people uh, overloading uh, an apartheid state and therefore that those of us here in the United States who support Israel are apologists for the apartheid, which in the campus culture, you find Jews are caught in a kind of pincer movement in that regard. That too, uninformed and malicious. Uninformed and malicious for sure. And, and you know, keep in mind that 20% of Israel's population um, are Arabs and Muslims, Twenty, fully 20%. That's a very large minority. Now that, I was recently uh, hospitalized in Israel and the doctor that was treating me was an Arab. The nurse who was treating me uh, when I was brought into emergency was an Arab. The I mean, the, the notion that this is, I, I can just tell you, <laughs> I've seen apartheid up close. In 1981, I was there as a guest of the anti-apartheid movement. In South Africa. In South Africa. And I was, at the time, arrested uh, in South Africa. So I saw apartheid up close. And not only to call Israel an apartheid state is itself an informed or malicious libel, but it undermines the real apartheid that took place in South Africa. And the and the Arab Muslim community 
of Israel, the Israeli citizens who are Arab and, Arabs and Muslims, they are the freest Arabs and Muslims anywhere in the Middle East, including every Arab or Muslim majority country. And they are among, if not the most accomplished, as you say, they are doctors, they are lawyers, they are pharmacists, they are nurses, they, are, they, are, they, are, they, are, they go to Israeli universities. Now that raises this question for me, your friends in South Africa, they have not said as they should we know apartheid. This is not apartheid. We're not here. We're, uh, maybe you're hearing that from some. I'm not hearing that generally from South Africans. No, you know, this goes back to a very painful uh, remembrance and experience I have that has indelibly imprinted itself not only on my memory, but on my psyche. I'm speaking about the World Conference Against Racism that took place in Durban, South Africa in 2001. Now, in the late 90s, when it was announced that there was going to be this conference, I was one of those who, who was excited about it, even celebrated. This was going to be the first international human rights conference of the 21st century. This was going to have as its organizing theme anti-racism. And it was taking place in Durban, South Africa, the birthplace of apartheid. And I ended up being a member of the uh, Canadian delegation. But that experience in Durban, you know, is seared, as I said, in my being forever. A world conference against racism and hate turned into a conference of racism and hate against Israel and the Jewish people. Now, as we're speaking here, I can still see the marches. I can still hear the chants that the struggle against apartheid in the 20th century required the dismantling of South Africa as an apartheid state, and the struggle against apartheid in the 21st century now requires the dismantling of Israel as an apartheid state. So that notion, the apartheid uh, label libel, began in Durban. And what happened right after Durban tells you something about the anti-Semitism that then mutated and metastasized to the present day. In the immediate aftermath of Durban, the UN General Assembly met and adopted some 18 resolutions condemning one member state of the international community, happened to be Israel, and some five resolutions against the rest of the international community combined. The UN Council on Human Rights met on its specific agenda items singling out one member state for indictment even before the hearing begins. That happened to be Israel. And the astonishing thing, if we talk about international human rights and humanitarian law, something that I find is actually unknown that the contracting parties to the Geneva Convention met for the first time ever, the Geneva Convention in 1949, the Corpus of International Humanitarian. The first time they met was in the immediate aftermath of Durban 2001. To put one state in the docket of the accused, not Russia, not China, not Iran, not North, the one state put in the docket of the accused was Israel. And they've met twice since then, and the only state put in the docket of the accused is Israel. Israel. And that, too, at that time, at the University of Michigan, was the founding of the uh, Israel apartheid movement on campus, BDS, etc. All this has a result of the World Conference Against Racism, and that was a tipping point with respect to the use of the libel against Israel. Israel is an apartheid state. Jews here, white apologists for the apartheid state. Next question, your answer can just simply be, I don't know, that's fine. And the question is this, how do you explain that South Africans who have experienced apartheid can go ahead and slander Israelis this way? I mean, there was a Jewish population in South Africa. There probably still is a small one. But where is this ignorance? Is this hatred? Is this is it something else? Or is the answer, I don't know. 
No, no, I, th I think it's, it, it wasn't always that way. As I said, the reason I, I and for reasons of time not going to, the, Durban became a tipping point for uh, South Africans as well because of those marches, because of the fallout that I mentioned. So it was a, a, a dramatic tipping. It had started before. I mean, anti-Semitism, not only the longest, the most enduring, the most toxic and the most lethal of hatreds, but it's one, as I said, that mutates and metastasizes over time, but it's grounded in one foundational, generic, historic trope, what I call the mother of all tropes. And that's the notion of Jews, the Jewish people, Israel is the Jew among the nations as the embodiment of all that is evil and the enemy of all that is good, reflecting whatever is the zeitgeist at any given moment in time. So when the zeitgeist was religion, the Jews were guilty of deicide. Contemporary application, Jews will not replace us, Israel, etc. When it was a black plague, Jews were held to be the poisoners of the wells. Contemporary application, the Jews, the Jewish people, Israel manufactured COVID virus, uh, disseminated it, and another trope profited from it. When it came in the 70s, and I say this as a law professor at the time celebrated that human rights emerged as the new secular religion of our time, then Israel was held out to be the geopolitical antichrist of our time. And you can date all this metastasizing, etc., from the Zionism as racism resolution in 1975. Then comes the uh, internalization of all this in, in what I call the laundering of the of anti-Semitism of Delage under a, a number of rubrics, universal public values, protective cover of the UN, authority of international law, culture of human rights, struggle against racism itself. You get to Durban, it's a tipping point. And then in South Africa, things start to change. They weren't like that uh, before it started to change and metastasize post-Durban. Um, the 10-7 the terrorist attacks, were they genocidal in intent? Well, that's something that's been missing here as well. And that is that Hamas is not only a terrorist organization under American law, that would be bad enough, but it is an anti-Semitic genocidal terrorist organization. And read a terrorist government in, in Gaza. Not because I say so, because they say so. They've been affirming it. It's in its founding charter of 1988, the public call for the destruction of Israel and the killing of Jews, wherever they may be. They've continued to affirm it since and rather than this be greeted with the outrage that it warrants and that Hamas then and since be put in the docket of, of the accused, you still have them being received and having a base and sanctuary in places like Qatar and Turkey and the like and all their enablers. So what you have a, a situation is a genocidal anti-Semitic group has been allowed to continue the way they have to the present day until we got Israel's 9-11. I have limited time with you, and I can talk to Ord anytime, but I'm going to bring Ord in anyhow, for, at least for a few minutes here, on exactly this. So you look at the UN, you look at the Office of Genocide Prevention at the UN, and of course you look at the UN Human Rights Council. In any way do they reflect anything that we're hearing today uh, from Irwin? Is there any pushback from, for example, the Office of Genocide Prevention to say, genocidal terrorists want to kill Jews. And since we are largely funded by the U.S., as you know, the Office of Genocide Prevention, we have our work cut out for us. 
or did they take the last couple of weeks and spend them in a vacation? You're right, Cliff. I, you know, I, I just looked at the website of the Office of Genocide Prevention, and there's nothing on there about either the current genocidal uh, actions by Hamas or the longstanding uh, genocidal uh, rhetoric coming out of Hamas, including in uh, their uh, covenant of 1988, or the uh, genocidal statements uh, by Iranian leaders, which happen on a near daily basis. And it seems to me this is really a perversion of what the UN was meant to be. And it, it, it reflects the capture of the UN by uh, autocracies, by dictatorships, by abusers of human rights. You know, you said a few years ago, I'm going to let you in here, but I, went, I didn't have to look this up because I remembered it. I don't remember how many years ago you said this, but it's not only stuck with me, but I've stolen it and repeated it. You said that the Islamic Republic of Iran both incites and threatens genocide against the Israelis. I don't know if you remember, but you have said that. I remember. Well, and, no, I can't. The interesting thing is, I'll never forget it, that the 21st century began on January 3rd with the Supreme Leader Khamenei saying that there can be no resolution to the Arab-Israeli conflict without the annihilation of the Jewish state. He didn't even use the euphemism of the Zionist regime. This is how the 21st century began, and as Oud said, they've been repeating it since excising the cancerous tumor. But what some people ignore, and you mentioned the Genocide Convention, that under the Genocide convention, the very incitement to genocide is a standing breach of the convention, whether or not yes. any mass atrocities follow. Yeah. So somebody can't say, well, uh, we Hamas only committed these things in October 7th. The point is that from 1988 on, they were in standing violation of the genocide convention. And the state parties to the genocide convention are obliged as a matter of law to prevent protect against and punish incitement to genocide, not just when you get down the road to the genocide itself. And did any single one of those actors do so? To the best of my knowledge, no one negotiating with the Islamic Republic of Iran, no Europeans, no Americans have said, by the way, we don't want you to have nuclear weapons. That's important. We're going to give you a lot of benefits if you don't and concessions. But it's also important to us you're inciting and threatening genocide, and that's against the Genocide Convention, and we need you to publicly back off. That should be part of this discussion. To the best of my knowledge, knowing, nah, it's not kind of, it's not it, important. It, it, it's worse than that. Uh, President <laughs> Raisi of Iran has been continuously rewarded uh, for his criminality rather than held accountable. He was a member, we forget, of the death squad uh, in 1988 in Iran responsible for the mass uh, murder of Iranian dissidents. He then was a deputy prosecutor. So for that, he was appointed attorney general. As attorney general, he presided over the largest per capita executions in Iran. Was he then held accountable? No. He then was appointed chief justice. As chief justice, he presided both over the mass domestic repression of 2019 and the down downing of PS752, uh, the airliner, which had so many uh, Iranian-Canadian citizens. And was he then yet held accountable? Not at all. He became president of Iran. And what became shocking, as president of Iran, he's invited to address the UN General Assembly, which he did in September. The person who's engaged in not only standing incitement to genocide, but where Iran itself is arming, financing, 
supporting, training Hamas, Hezbollah, their terrorist proxy, and, and the like. So this is the, and then even the U.S. Council on Foreign Relations invites Raisi uh, to speak with him while all this is going on. So this is not only uh, double standards, it becomes the theater of the absurd. You have been over your career, great supporter of the United Nations, its potential, what it could do, uh, other international organizations that in theory are committed to human rights. I guess I have to ask, are you less optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Are you disen- disenchanted? Do you see a, r- a way a way to make these organizations do what they were supposed to do in, and we'll talk about this a little bit as well, in what seems to be a resurgence of violent, genocidal anti-Semitism in many parts of the world, including, inclu- including America and Canada, by the way? Well, look, we're approaching the 75th anniversary. It's not the 75th anniversary of Israel, but the 75th anniversary of both of the Genocide Convention and of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, December 9th and 10th, respectively. I think we need to use this occasion for a revisiting of founding principles of the UN Charter. I always remember what the former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan said to me, that a United Nations that does not have the combating of anti-Semitism as a priority on its agenda is a United Nations that has abandoned its past and forfeits its future. And so that what's at stake here, as I've always said with regard to anti-Semitism, is toxic to democracies, an assault on our common humanity, the canary in the mineshaft of global evil. The UN has to realize that that anti-Semitism in which it is, ends up being engaged in is toxic uh, to the UN. It's got to return to its founding principles, its founding ideals. We need the UN. If we didn't have one, we'd have to invent it. But we need a, a UN that is anchored in those founding principles of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, its UN Charter, our common humanity. So maybe for an exit question, take your time on this, and I'll start with you, uh, Ord. Do you see solutions? Because what we have been doing, what people like Irwin has been doing his life's work is getting turned back. Do we new? Are there solutions? Are there new approaches? Or do we? Or is it simply that we? Well, we're going to have to think hard about what to do and 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 figure it out. But we don't actually know. Give me your thoughts about this. Sure. It seems to me that there are two aspects of this. One is that you know what Hamas is really doing is it, it it's an information warfare campaign. Among uh, other things, right. Uh, among other things, and uh, what uh, you know, they can't win on the battlefield, so they're trying to delegitimize uh, Israel. And it seems to me that this is an information warfare campaign that Israel and the West ought to be winning. We are abiding by the law of armed conflict, while the other side is not. So we need to do whatever we can to explain to the world that we are abiding by the law of armed conflict, and the other side is not. And it seems to me we also need to take steps to hold the other side accountable, including doing things like holding a Raisi accountable, uh, including designating uh, Hamas officials for engaging in the use of human shields, as is required by U.S. law, including prosecuting Hamas officials for killing American citizens. These are things that haven't been done. There hasn't been an effort to hold the other side accountable for their war crimes. seems to me we need to do a much better job of it. Erwin, your final thoughts on this question or anything else that you want to make sure you get into this conversation for this audience? Well, you know, i very much a, a believer in Martin Luther King's recent 60th anniversary commemoration that the uh, arc of uh, 
history will bend towards justice, but it won't happen on its own. Uh, we will have to move it uh, towards justice. And I think that's where, uh, you know, we're, we're living at a time now that it, it's, it's hard to believe we talked about genocide that we are witnessing at one and the same time that never again yet in uh, Russian criminal aggression against Ukraine. You have mass atrocities that are constant of genocide. Our Wallenberg Center published a report on that. In China, you've got uh, the Uyghurs, mass atrocities constituting a genocide. Then you've got Hamas engaging in incitement to, and if they could, committing genocide. I think that this has to serve as a, a wake-up call because what we have here is really an axis of evil. And the community of democracies has to realize that what's at stake here is our common humanity. The axis of evil has to be held to account. The community of democracies have got to ground themselves in what the common humanity and those values uh, that inspire us and undergird everything we need and do, uh, that we stand behind it, advance it, implement it, and then we can bring about what Martin Luther King talked the arc of history towards justice. And my last point will just be if the arc of history is to bend towards justice, as you suggest, the free nations of the world have to be willing to bend it. The U.S. has to lead that effort. No other nation will and no other nation can. Erwin Kotler, thanks for dropping in to see us today. I'm very pleased to see you and may you have many, many, many years to work on these problems because they're very important. Thanks, thanks to, for joining us. Thanks I, to all. I just want to say that yeah. I, I get a, a lot of my uh, important uh, knowledge uh, from the work of the of FDD. I mean, you guys do terrific uh, work and I am a, a daily, daily and avid uh, reader uh, and I hope imbiber of what you're doing. And Ord is one of the great people in international law. So uh, I get my inspiration just by coming here. Well, we're gratified and grateful to, to hear you say that. Thanks again for being here. Thanks again, Erin. Thanks again, Ord. And thanks to all of you who have been with us for this conversation here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Foreign Policy. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us, preferably with five stars. Ratings and reviews help give us visibility and the opportunity to reach more people who seek to understand the most critical national security and foreign policy issues. Also, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow FDD on social media and visit our website at fdd.org. There you can find research by FDD experts, you can subscribe to all FDD's products, you can catch up on any past episodes you may have missed. Finally, we'd love your feedback, your ideas, your questions, your criticisms. Send us an email at foreignpodicy at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.